All right, uh, welcome to another episode of Extra AI, the podcast that delves into the fascinating world of AI and its implications across various industries. And this is your host, Raghu Banda. Today, we are thrilled to have a very special guest, Mr. Robert Plotkin, the co-founder of Blue Shift IP, joining us to discuss a topic that's at the forefront of technology and law. We will talk about the genie in the machine, the book he has authored. And we'll go into a deep, a bit of a deep dive in, into the impact of AI and generative AI on patent law and beyond. So in this episode, we will explore the intricate ways in which AI is reshaping the landscape of intellectual property. Robert, with his extensive expertise in patent law and AI, will help us navigate through the complexities of this emerging field. We will discuss how generative AI is challenging traditional notions of innovation and creativity and what this means for inventors, companies, investors, and also the legal system. A quick background about Robert Plotkin. Robert Plotkin is a leading expert in leveraging AI to maximize creativity and innovation. His book, The Genie in the Machine, was the first and still the only work to address the impact of generative AI on innovation and the patent system. He is recognized as a thought leader in human AI collaboration. Robert empowers individuals with the essential skills they need to harness AI to supercharge their creative abilities. He also addresses the common fear of AI replacement by illustrating how embracing AI allows creative creatives to uh, concentrate on high level ideation, strategy and problem solving while relegating the routine details to AI. Having a rare combined expertise as an MIT educated computer scientist, an educator and a seasoned patent attorney, Robert boasts over 25 years of specialized experience in guiding leading tech companies in securing intellectual property protection for their cutting-edge AI innovations. Robert is also an adept communicator, hosting nearly 100 podcast episodes and being a frequent podcast guest on the topic of AI-fueled innovation. So whether you are a tech enthusiast, a legal professional, or just curious about the future of AI and law, this episode promises to offer some very valuable insights and thought-provoking discussions. Welcome to the show, Robert. We are excited to have you with us and look forward to your expert perspective on this groundbreaking topic. And to you all, our audience, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. We'll provide more details at the end of the podcast. All right, uh, welcome back to our uh, podcast series, Extra AI and Machine Learning Applications. We are focused on, uh, as you know, talking about topics around AI and ML. And today I have an interesting conversation. We'll talk about the genie in the machine. Of course, the, we all know what is the genie. We are going to talk about AI and Gen AI. And I have a wonderful guest with me, Robert Plotkin. He recently authored a book called Genie in the Machine, but we are going to talk a few things around the different concepts around uh, patents and other things as well. Welcome on board, uh, Robert. Can you give a brief introduction about yourself? 
Yeah, Raghu, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I, this is a topic I'm really passionate about. I wrote that book, The Genie and the Machine, back in 2009, you know, long before this was a, a popular topic. And my connection to AI actually goes back quite a long way. Uh, I studied computer science at MIT back in the late 1980s. I then became a patent lawyer and for the last 25 plus years, I've been obtaining patents for clients on software, including AI technology uh, for uh, tech companies in the US all around the world. So I'm used to seeing the, the leading cutting edge of technology for products often before they, long before they hit the market. And I started programming when I was a kid, probably around 10 years wow. old. Uh, start, and then I remember when I was in high school, this probably was 1987, 1988, mm -hmm. I entered a science fair. So the project in which I wrote some software that could learn how to play tic-tac-toe. Mm -hmm. So it was actually a very simple form of reinforcement learning, which mm -hmm. is of course now very popular. And I based that, your listeners might be interested to know, it was on a project that went back to 1961. There was a wow. early a researcher named Donald Mitchie who created this system that could learn how to play tic-tac-toe. He did not have access to a computer. So he had matchboxes where he drew different tic-tac-toe boards on and put beads in the boxes. And mm -hmm. as it learned to play by winning and losing, he either added beads into a box to reinforce a win or subtracted beads from a box. And that served as a way of indicating which box or, or next move should be learned. So this was a manual system for using mm -hmm. reinforcement learning to learn how to play tic-tac-toe. So I, as, a, as I said, as a teenager, I wrote some software that could automatically play against itself using that method. Uh, so that goes back to a very, very long way. And then you mentioned the genie in the machine. I'm sure we can talk right. more about it. But when I became a patent lawyer, this is in the late 1990s, I, became, I started seeing how AI was being used to automate uh, the inventive process. Even back then, I became really fascinated with it, started writing about it. And that led to this book, The Genie and the Machine, described how some AI pioneers were using AI to automatically invent uh, all kinds of things. Uh, and uh, I described the implications of that for the patent system, such as can an AI generated invention be patented? And if so, how should the legal rules apply to it? And then of course, fast forwarding to today, I've been really uh, fascinated with the most recent developments in generative AI, large language models and so forth that's been captivating uh, everyone in the year since ChatGPT was introduced. Great introduction there, uh, Robert. And I believe you are at the intersection of uh, two great technologies, right? Like I think we are talking about uh, uh, AI, generative AI, and now applying it with the patent technology, right? The patents. Because yeah. I know there is a lot of uh, buzz out there about what is going to happen with authors, what is going to happen with patents and all. So that is some great uh, background you have provided. Before we take a break and come back into our real media for conversation, maybe I would want the audience to get a, an idea from you about how is AI supercharging this innovation? Maybe yeah. a few thoughts in your words. Absolutely. I know that you know most of the attention in the last year has been on what people are calling generative AI, especially large language models. 
And some of that is being used in the inventive process. But most of what I see mm -hmm. from clients who come to me with inventions they want to be patented, they're using mostly other kinds of AI, uh, like genetic or evolutionary algorithms or various kinds of optimization processes. Uh, I like to use the example of how Thomas Edison in, uh, came up with the filament for the original incandescent light bulb. You know, he famously mm -hmm. said, genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. And when he was on the hunt, this is over a hundred years ago for the ideal right. filament for a light bulb, he had to search around, find materials, which were carbonized paper and bamboo and cotton, and then test them physically. He spent over a year. He tested thousands of materials. It was very painstaking. Now what I'm seeing is, in, is innovative companies using AI to generate possible mm -hmm. designs, simulate them, evaluate mm -hmm. them all in a computer to radically cut down on the amount of real world physical experimentation that has to be performed. There's a lot of that being done in drug discovery and materials design. And so then you combine that with a lot of human ingenuity on the front end, designing the system, of course, to cut down on the combinatorial explosion, and then to review the outputs, refine them. That's what I'm seeing a lot of, not as much of the uh, large language models being used in actual inventing, but this type of uh, process for doing automated generation, evaluation, simulation of of possible uh, inventions and, mm -hmm. and designs is, is radically uh, accelerating the pace of innovation and is enabling people to develop uh, all kinds of things much more quickly right. than they ever could have before. Right. No, that's a great point you have made, uh, Robert, because if you go back uh, 100 years back or 200 years back, I know there are a lot of these scientists, but what else or what other things they could have achieved if they had this kind of innovation or this kind of technology available to them, the AI technology and Gen AI, it would be even thinking about it, it is mind blowing. I know there is, of course, there, there is always uh, a fear that comes out of all this saying that, hey, is AI going to replace humans? But again, <laughs> that's a big question. Uh, do you want to take a brief uh, uh, response to that before we take a break? Yeah, well, I'll tie it into what we just talked about, which is if you think of what if Thomas Edison had AI at his side, you know, would that have eliminated the need for him? I don't think so. I think it would have enabled him to test out and bring to fruition his ideas and his inspiration more quickly. But someone like that had a virtual endless number of ideas. And even when using current AI to streamline uh, and supercharge the inventive process, there is still a lot of human knowledge and skill and ingenuity required. I mean, anyone who has used any kind of machine learning or as I mentioned, evolutionary algorithms, they don't just run on their own, particularly when you're trying to use them to solve a real world problem, like enabling a robot to move through a real world environment or steer or, or do uh, engage in autonomous driving. Uh, you, you need a lot of human ingenuity involves uh, skill in engineering and mathematics and physics and programming. Uh, to enable these systems to really work in the real world. So I'm, 
not particularly afraid that systems are going to replace humans. I do mm -hmm. think if this they're putting pressure on humans to learn how to use AI, uh, because the people who don't may get replaced by either AI systems or by humans who have learned how to use AI well. But if you do keep your skills up by learning mm -hmm. how to use these systems and collaborate with other people and make the most of AI systems, I think you'll just become more valuable. And the same is true at the organizational level. You know, companies need to learn how to make use of the latest AI tools. That includes the generative AI and large language models and other kinds of models and incorporate them into their innovative processes. If they can do that, they're going to stay ahead their competitors uh, rather than than get replaced. So I understand the fear of replacement, uh, mm -hmm. but you know we've seen so many previous generations of of technology that where that have raised this kind of fear. And each time it's happened, yeah, it sometimes has caused certain businesses and even industries to disappear. But then they've always been replaced right. with something else. As long as we have new problems. Uh, to continue to tackle, you know, curing diseases, uh, enabling transportation to happen more efficiently, uh, reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, you can go on and on at the huge problems we still have to tackle. Agriculture, bringing food to people. I mean, these, these are massive uh, worldwide problems that, that are nowhere close to being tackled. As long as we still have those problems, there'll still be a need for people who know how to leverage technology to try to solve them. Yeah, I, I completely echo with your uh, sentiments and your thoughts, uh, Robert. I completely agree that there is no dearth of problems. Being human beings, I think we got different problems that has to be addressed, whether it is at the local level, national level, or at global level, and how well we can use the AI technologies to fasten this problem, this problem-solving approach. Great. I think let's take a quick break, come back, and uh, get into the real meat of our today's conversation. All right, uh, welcome back. Now let's dive in and dive in into our uh, real topic today. So now I will briefly touch base on the aspect of AI replacing humans, but now there is this huge thought about is AI replacing human authors, artists, or inventors, or inventions and other things. What are your thoughts about that? I know there is a lot of buzz going on around that. Yeah, uh, I think that um, let's just take a look at uh, the uh, latest developments in large language models. Again, I'll say ChatGPT because that's what really brought it to the fore. You can use a tool like ChatGPT to write text for you, to write a blog post, to write an email, to write a marketing document for you. Uh, it's quite an incredible advance that you can put a natural language uh, prompt in asking it to write something and it can create something. Yeah, it's based on training data, but create output that's not merely copied from what existed before and is synthesized in a way that's responsive to what you asked it to do. That is an incredible advance. I think we're going to look back on that and see it as as big a development as the printing press. I mean, the printing press was a revolutionary advance, but in a sense, you can look back and say all it did was copy what mm -hmm. a human already wrote. 
large language models at this scale are actually able to synthesize new text. Now, does that mean human authors are going to be replaced? No, I don't think so, because what the, the language models produce is generally fairly bland. Uh, it, it does not completely reflect what you need out of it, particularly if you're uh, writing in a professional context like me as a lawyer or as a, a marketing professional, or you're writing in a special for a specialized audience, like let's say doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, for all of these reasons, you need to iterate with these tools. You need to put input in, get output out, look at it, manually revise it, feed some input back. And there's always an iterative process going on back and forth between human and the AI. I wrote about that in the Genie and the Machine back 15 years ago, because that's just a a constant feature of every new technology that that comes along is there's always iteration. There are bugs uh, that Mm -hmm. that occur. Everyone talks about hallucinations right now with with large language models. Some of these problems, I think, will get addressed, at least in part, by further technological improvements. People are already working on addressing the this so-called hallucination problem in various ways. But no matter what develops with the technology, my belief is that there will always be a need for humans to provide the input. And that takes some skill too, remember? You know, Mm -hmm. the better the input you put in, the better the output you'll get out. That's why there's been so much attention to prompt engineering. Um, I know there's debate about whether we're going to need prompt engineering in the near future, but you know, prompt engineering, just like programming, you could say, well, a computer is, is a universal machine. It's capable of doing anything. Yeah, but it really can only do anything in particular when you program it well. And that's why for the last, you know, uh, 60, 70 years, people have been learning how to become better and better programmers. So on the input side, there's skill needed and then evaluating the output and revising the output there's skill needed. And then of course, there's skill needed in developing the system. So I just use writing as an example, but it doesn't matter what profession you're talking about. It could be in graphic arts. It can be uh, doctors, lawyers, accountants, educators, uh, in any field. I think there's, there's for the foreseeable future going to be a need for people and it's not going to be replacing us. Beautiful. So I like some of the aspects that you have mentioned here, right? Like um, it, it is that with these AI-assisted tools, you will be, it, it would be helpful for you to maintain on what is there and how you can quickly produce some things and add maybe emotions into this rather than just using the text or whatever is provided. Mm-hmm. It all depends on how prompt engineering is again another form of programming like you mentioned. So basically that takes to this question of uh, people thinking about, okay, now what are the skills that I, I need to get the most out of these latest AI technologies, right? To avoid from being replaced. So that will be the eventual question or the immediate question coming from the people using these technologies. Yeah, generally uh, with something like ChatGPT, because it, it can do a lot of the low level writing, the production of individual words, sentences, paragraphs. That means that uh, as the human providing input to it, the skill that you need to develop is the uh, you, you could call a higher level skill of how to formulate a prompt or the input 
to such a system that conveys what output or result you want to produce uh, in as effective a way as possible, keeping in mind how the tool like ChatGPT works. Again, the reason in my book, I call the book, The Genie and the Machine, and I use throughout this metaphor of a genie, was I was referring to AI technology as a kind of digital genie that you could command by giving it a wish of some kind. Mm -hmm. The wish being a high level description of the problem you wanted to solve or the result you wanted to achieve. You would then give it to the AI and the AI would work out the details and produce an output that solved that problem or produced the result. And what that means is then the skill you needed was the skill of how to write wishes that were effective right. as possible. W one uh, somewhat playful way you can think about it, have, have you ever read any stories about genies? You know that the humans in those stories <laughs> often end up not getting what they wanted, right? And you could see that as a lesson in how difficult it can be to actually write good, effective wishes. And the same is true with computer technology, uh, uh, like a large language models. They can make it, when you first use ChatGPT, it can be deceptive. Looks like you can just tell it anything and get great stuff out, but that's not really true. It's not true with programming languages. Traditionally, it's not true with prompting of large language models now. It's not true with any kind of computer technology. So, But in general, I would say uh, you need to develop these higher level skills of how to provide instructions uh, that produce the best output, and then how to evaluate evaluate the output that comes out so that you can either manually refine it or provide some new input back in the, into the system to enable it to refine the output for you as you iterate towards the ultimate aim you're trying to achieve. Beautiful. I, I like the aspect of the analogy that you have provided with the, when you're talking about how humans have, I think we all read these genie-related books on the wishes and analogy i believe uh though it, though, it, though it is a funny analogy thing back into that but it is very truthfully very rightfully that you have mentioned that that is where you are talking about this high level information or high level information how you are providing to the system meaning giving the right inputs so that you can get better outcomes or better uh, wishes out now uh, that's that's uh, so now taking it into the context of these corporate firms or technology firms. What are your thoughts about that? How is um, how are these uh, technology companies or the corporate companies uh, trying to do with AI in developing new products and services or updating the current products and services? A few thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned ways in which uh, innovative companies are inventing things using AI already. But I'll mention something else now, which is uh, we're in a quite interesting time now where even companies that don't develop AI technology are leveraging existing AI, like large language models, to do things like train uh, custom large language models to fine tune GPT, for example, based on their own corporate data. I mm -hmm. mean, there's a boom going on now. There's lots of consultancies and tech companies that are providing offerings now where they'll say to a company, let's say like a law firm like me, uh, if you give us or work with us 
uh, to train a language model based on all of your data, let's say all of the patent applications we've written or the legal briefs we've written. We'll train a language model that you can then ask to do things like write a new patent application or write a new brief in your own company's style, right? So there's a lot of that going on now that is making the power of, of AI in the form of language models available to companies that are not developing their own AI. They're fine tuning or developing custom language models. And some companies are doing that then and making it available externally to do customer service, right? You train your, think about a big company like GE that has a, a, a consumer who buys a washing machine and you know, you go on to their chatbot. Uh, now it's often not very good. You ask it a question, it gives you an answer that's not very relevant. And it's obvious to you that you are speaking to some sort of rule-based chatbot mm -hmm. and you get very frustrated. Well, all the comp all com uh, big companies now are working on updating those types of customer service chatbots to incorporate large language models that are trained based on their own corporate data. In the case of GE, it would be information about all of their products, their, their washing machines and ovens and so forth. And that's, you can think about any company uh, creating their own language models that they're then become customer facing. Uh, and I think that's very exciting. There's a lot of great opportunities there for companies to provide better service and to reduce their cost and to provide a better customer experience, better for customers. You know, you get more satisfied and less frustrated. Uh, I, as an intellectual property attorney, though, think uh, want to think very carefully about not inadvertently exposing company trade secrets, you know, for example, to customers, mm -hmm. you need to, uh, when training these language models, think very carefully about what training data are you putting in and then who is getting access to the chatbot. Even, even internally, you may not want everyone in your company being able to ask a question to the chatbot and get an answer out that exposes information to that person that they're not supposed to be able to have access to based on their role in the company. So this does raise some tricky issues about confidentiality and trade secrets for companies at the same time as it creates some really amazing opportunities for innovation. So this gets into the aspects of uh, data security, data privacy, and a lot of these other things, which will be very interesting, right? I think um, this brings to this interesting question right now, if, we have been talking about how, uh, and you come from the patent technology background. Now we see that with these uh, large language models, every company is coming up with their own large language model with our data that they have, with their customer interactions they have, and maybe they will be. So coming to this point of uh, AI-related technologies that you are investing or embedding into these products, can AI-created inventions be patented as well? Because you are coming from the <laughs> patent technology. So what are your thoughts about that? Because that is going to be a little different from what uh, human-created technology. Of course, there is still a human programming behind the AI-related technology. But what are your thoughts on that coming from that? I mean, I know that, that AI systems can, e in some cases, either completely create... Um, 
patentable inventions or significantly assist in that process. In the book that I wrote, The Genie and the Machine, back in 2009, I already gave examples of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I gave examples of inventions that, although there was a human involvement, especially on the front end in setting up the parameters of the system and some of the training data, so it's very significant human input, then the system ran on its own, essentially. And in that type of process I talked about where I analogized to Thomas Edison, generated possible um, inventions, evaluated them, modified them, and kept doing that iteratively in an automated loop to then come up with designs on the output end that were new and useful in a, in a way that could be patented. Uh, so I, that can happen much more frequently, as, as I've been mentioning, there is an iterative process that happens between the human and the AI system in which the AI significantly reduces the amount of experimentation that the humans have to perform and does come up with uh, ideas, you could say, or helps to brainstorm uh, and g gives the human inventor there's um, information that they can use to iterate. So that is definitely happening. Uh, but even uh, when using something like a large language model, which is quite different than than what I just mentioned, you know, they're based right. on, on neural networks. Uh, if you've toyed around with ChatGPT and asked it to come up with ideas for a document or a marketing campaign or something else, you probably have experienced that it can come up with output that surprises you, that you wouldn't have thought of. Now, that may or may not be patentable, but you could see how you could use something like that to spur additional ideas and help you along, just like you might with a, another person in a brainstorming session. So I think all of these tools have a lot of uses as part of a human AI collaborative process uh, that can lead to patentable inventions. So uh, this is where I would like to dive a bit more, right? Like um, you're talking about, yet yeah, um, I can go to ChatGPT, type in some text, uh, ChatGPT or Bard, and I ask some questions and it will spit out some answers to me. This is where th these things obviously cannot be patented because everybody can, everybody has ideas and there is, there is some, you generate, you push in an idea and outcome is achieved via these uh, tools, AI-assisted tools. But in the middle, this is where you're, I believe you're talking about adding human value to the results that were achieved uh, when you do some prompts and you get some results. Maybe is that is, is, that is a place uh, patents would be applicable? Meaning like, okay, I push in some kind of, I, I provide some ideas, uh, I get some output. Now I take that output, I fine tune it with my style of writing or my style of uh, thinking, and then I generate it. So is this where, because you are coming from the patented technology, is this gonna be a very interesting thing for you because there will be people coming out and saying, hey, this is this book was written, but this book has some ideas. They cannot directly relate the ideas, but I think there are some ideas where uh, have been modified and provided. Uh, any examples that you would like to quote on that? on how this yeah, well, is, field is going to be evolving. Well, I, I, I absolutely agree with you that it's where the human ingenuity gets into the process that is where there could be 
something patentable. In patent law, when the patent office evaluates a new invention to determine whether a patent should be granted on it, one of the uh, uh, requirements that that invention has to meet is that it the invention has to be what we call non-obvious. And what that means is the invention has to uh, be um, a, an advance over the state of the existing art that goes beyond what the ordinary person in that field would have come up with just using routine skill. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine, uh, I'll give some simple examples. Let's just okay. take something like a mousetrap, you know, a quintessential type of mechanical invention. If there's an existing mousetrap that works according to some existing mechanism with a spring and a lever and a base on it and so forth, and it's been patented, and you come along and say, you know, that original mousetrap was made with pine wood. I'm going to use, I'm going to substitute in oak wood instead. Now, if that oak wood doesn't impart any new or different functionality to the mousetrap, you're, you cannot get a patent on the mouse, same mousetrap with just a new material substituted. Generally, that's considered an obvious thing to do because people who invent in that field all know that when they're tinkering with new designs, they should be playing around with different commonly available materials, different metals, different types of wood, even sometimes changing the size of things is considered an obvious, what do you call an obvious design choice? So in, in light of the fact that there's an existing mousetrap for you to get a patent on a new one, you have to come up with a change to the design that goes beyond what the ordinary mousetrap engineer would think of doing. And that's what we call a non-obvious improvement. Now, non-obviousness is a notoriously difficult legal standard to apply in practice. In fact, the, the legal definition in the US is, is somewhat circular. Uh, it says uh, a new invention is non-obvious if it would not have been obvious to a person of ordinary skill in the field uh, to invent. It's very subjective. We often, as a, as a patent attorney, I often get into debates with patent examiners about what is and isn't obvious, but you can see the, the purpose of that standard is to only allow patents to be granted on inventions that represent some true advance over the state of the art that required more than ordinary human skill to invent. That goes back to the point you made let's say with something like ChatGPT. If you mm -hmm. just put in a, a prompt to ChatGPT that anyone would think of giving it, and it gives you an output, I would say that output's probably obvious. Right. Um, and so you, if you invented a machine just using a single prompt that produced a single output, and then you built the thing that ChatGPT told you, that's probably uh, not patentable. But that's why I keep going back to the fact that in practice, most inventions are going to be built through a more complex iterative process involving some human ingenuity on the front end, the use of AI to do some work in the middle, um, 
some experimentation, weeding out of possibilities, generating of some new possibilities, and then some human evaluation on the back end, and then some iteration back and forth. And that's why I keep calling this a form of human AI collaboration or human AI partnership, very much like humans collaborate with each other. Right, right. So I like the aspect of this complex iterative process that is very much needed when you're building this and augmenting on top of what is already available. And this can apply, like you mentioned, to any field, whether it is just authoring a book as well. In the past, before 2019, like you have also authored a book pre-ChatGPT um, uh, days. And now uh, I would, for, uh, for one sense, I also think that maybe I have more tools to make the book better. <laughs> uh, rather than um, uh, some people thinking or fearing that, hey, my job is going to be uh, taken over by AI. So I completely agree with uh, what you said that the process, this iterative process will be faster and then you can come back to a stage. Beautiful. So now this takes to an interesting question about the Consumers trust and distrust, right? Like, uh, uh, how can we address, how can the trust and distrust be addressed by AI uh, with all this widespread AI adoption that is happening? I know there are a lot of hallucinations already happening and there is this things about any few thoughts from your... Yeah, I think, you know, the, the distrust from the consumer side stands... Ten, uh, stems from a few things. One is just the power of the tools. You know, they are so powerful. I'll say, I don't know about you, but when I first tried ChatGPT a year ago, I was astonished. I am very well immersed in the field. I work on cutting edge technologies all the time. I thought I was very familiar with language models and how they worked. And I was just really blown away. So if that, and I've spoke with other people who I know who are clients of mine, who have been in machine learning and other related fields for a long time. And they've all told me the same thing. I feel like I'm in good company. A while ago, I watched some interviews with Bill Gates and Stephen Wolfram, who also mm -hmm. admitted they were wrong about how quickly these technologies would be developed. There's a couple of great interviews you can find online. One with Bill Gates talking about how the team from OpenAI came to his house in the summer of 2022 to show him GPT-4. Mm -hmm. And I think he had told them, don't come to me until you've got something that's really going to impress me. You know, So they did, and they came to him, and he was impressed. And he said, you know, I didn't think we were going to see something that powerful for another five to 10 years. And so uh, I understand when I say just the power of these tools and the speed at which there's been this huge step up in the last year, uh, uh, and then the incredible of uh, pace of innovation over the last year, I could see why that would cause some distrust. And on top of that, you have a lot of, of people, even leaders in the industry, talking about how AI uh, might take over all of humanity. That is going to cause distrust. I actually don't tend to buy into that. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's some other real legitimate reasons why people distrust AI. Uh, large language models do um, hallucinate. If you don't like the term hallucinate, it just means they generate output which is phrased as if it's true and yet is false. Right. Uh, and if you've used a chat GPT, you'll see that it says things that are false, but doesn't give any indication 
that they're false. So it's very hard as a human to know whether to trust the accuracy of what it's saying. Uh, there's also all of the bias that we find in uh, the outputs of large language models. They're only as uh, objective or as unbiased as the training data. And so a lot of the training data is biased. I mean, biased both in a mathematical sense and a human sense in that they can express uh, racial or ethnic or gender biases because of the training data there. So all of those things uh, lead to distrust. And then I think the fear of being replaced by AI all uh, adds to it. Now, what can we do to address those? There's a few things I think that users or consumers can do to address their own distrust. One is try out the tools and use them and experiment with them. I'm amazed still at how many people I speak to who are distrustful. And when I say, have you tried chat GPT? They say, uh, no, I haven't gotten around to it yet. Mm -hmm. Try the tools out, work with them. I think that will address some fear that they are, you know, uh, the Terminator or something like that. Uh, and that's not to, 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 dismiss the legitimate fears, but I think that lack of familiarity is just one of the bases for distrust. I think most of the burden for addressing the distrust is actually though on the uh, technology provider side, on you know the open AIs and Microsofts and Googles and Metas of the world to be transparent about what they're doing, about how they're training models, about what the applications are doing, how they're using training data, how they're using user data, what you put into them and what you put out. Uh, companies are going to have to be really quite transparent about all of this to gain trust and dispel fear. I am concerned uh, it hasn't happened yet, but if there is any big uh, scandal, you know, that one of the companies turns out is using uh, user data in a way that's not consistent with what their stated policies is. We've seen this in the past, of course, right. with other kinds of technologies where private user data is being used. If that happens with generative AI, we could see, you know, a real setback in user trust and, and adoption. And so I hope, I hope that the large companies uh, adopt clear, transparent policies and then really act according to them in order to maintain the trust of, of all of us. So that's a great point that you raised, right? I think um, about uh, how do we handle this um, distrust and other things. This comes, so I now, uh, this comes to a stage now, I have this interesting question about, yeah, we talked about this distrust and we talked about how it can be handled. We also talked about data bias, but how can all these biases in AI be overcome? When we talk to promote, we know about uh, the different things like whether it is equity or fairness or inclusion, diversity. Yeah. So that is going to be again a huge field, a huge topic. Yeah, so I mean, this, this, and, and first, let me just say this has been an issue in AI machine learning before generative AI and large language models. Yes. I know that in facial recognition, you know, there mm -hmm. were quite, quite a few studies showing that some of the large systems for facial recognition were, were mostly good at, at uh, recognizing fairly light-skinned faces. Right. And right. they, you know, they didn't do, why? They weren't trained on darker-skinned faces. So that that's a quintessential type of example of how the training data biases or limitations in the training data can cause uh, biases in the output or results. And so the same thing is happening with large language models. I know OpenAI was, was very open about the fact that before they released ChatGPT, 
they mm -hmm. found that when they asked it questions, it would sometimes produce output that was racially uh, biased. Why? It was trained mm -hmm. on a lot of content on the internet, which is full mm -hmm. of racially biased mm -hmm. and, and much worse than that content. So mm -hmm. they had to build in filters and uh, modifications on the output side. Uh, that's an example of what's now being called guard guardrails. You know, there's other mm -hmm. kinds of guardrails for safety and, and things like that, that are uh, for intellectual property protection so that the outputs don't uh, refer to, especially in the artwork context, don't show copyrighted or, or trademarked characters. So how can we address this? One is on the training side. You know, let's train models with a bro broader range of diverse inputs uh, and that will help make the outputs be less biased the next thing is uh, you know i think we're already seeing this encourage a economy and ecosystem that is much more diverse uh, so mm. hugging face you know i think i looked the other day they have like a couple of hundred thousand right. models on there you know, in the news, if you always pay attention to the general news, you would think that GPT is the only model that exists. Maybe you'd hear about Llama every yeah. once in a while, you know, because those are from the biggest companies. But there are literally hundreds of thousands of models. And a company like Hugging Face is, is providing a marketplace and a community for uh, publishing those and enabling people to experiment and share. You know, I think that will help. Uh, a lot. I think open source uh, will play a role in in promoting uh, diversity and then educating consumers and consumers being educated about this so that they can make choices about which tools to use and then per, uh, put uh, demand on the providers mm -hmm. to make available tools that are you know that that address these these issues in uh, in diversity and equity and inclusion and then the last thing which is always true in these issues is to get a broader diverse range of people involved in the development of the technology you know i think when when you don't have that and there's just a narrow range of uh, of people uh, involved in creating technology even when they're totally well intentioned their own biases or limitations in their right. worldview or their limitations in their understanding about what the users want is going to become embedded in the technology. So if we have a broader range of people involved, that will uh, help to address that problem. Right. No, I completely echo with your uh, sentiments and your thoughts about putting the right guardrails in there so that you get the right set of uh, how you can uh, overcome all these kind of different issues. Now, coming to the end of the conversation, I would like to go, I call this the million dollar question or the billion dollar question <laughs> about how you can, how do you differentiate from the competition out there? And you are coming from like the patenting organization, I think about, I think uh, Blue Shift. Uh, why should clients hire you to provide solutions, right? I think whether when you we talk, we, we we talked about a lot of these things about yeah. the solutions are one click away. Uh, so so any thoughts that you would like to provide? Yeah. Uh, provide? I, I, I will answer it for myself, but I'll just say first: <laughs> everyone yeah. needs to ask this question about yes. themselves and their own job and their own company. You know right. what unique value and competitive advantage do we provide that would compel 
our customers to keep coming to us and buying from us? And why can't they just go and get what we do for them done on their own using an mm-hmm. automated tool or a lower cost provider? You know, and so I, in the law, I would use a good, an analogy of watching technology evolve over time with um, stock brokers. It's mm-hmm. hard to imagine or remember that years ago, stockbrokers were the only people who had access to real-time stock information. And people used to call up their stockbroker and say, what's the price of IBM right now? And the stockbroker would look it up and give that person an answer and they'd charge for that service, right? Right. uh, We laugh at that now, right? (laughs) But it used to be that lots of professionals derived a large amount of value just from having um, unique access to information. That, I wouldn't say that that's completely disappeared as a competitive advantage, but merely having a, a unique access to information or privileged access to information is, is something that almost any professional now should not really be relying on as what gives them a competitive advantage. In many fields, like in the law, uh, I don't think we even charge anyone for just providing access to information anymore because information access has become such a universal commodity. It's essentially treated as as a free free asset. So then things moved on from information to what was called knowledge, meaning the ability to apply uh, rules or skill to information. Uh, and and that's what a lot of lawyers like me, I think, have still put their stock in trade into and all kinds of other professions is knowledge. Right. I think what large language models are starting to do is commoditize knowledge going right. up that level. Uh, it, it, and so it's not we're not quite there yet, but that's the direction we're heading in. So what what I'm doing uh, what I would recommend to anyone do who's in a field where knowledge is becoming commoditized is move up to the next level. People are calling it different things. You might call it wisdom. You know, what's mm-hmm. wisdom? It's the ability to take knowledge and apply it in a more holistic context where you come to me as a client and I really pay attention and care about who you are, what your needs are, what challenges you're facing, who mm-hmm. your competitors are. Uh, and then apply all of my skills, tools, information, and knowledge to provide you with a solution that's holistic and takes everything into account uh, based on your particular situation and what you need. That, you could say, is wisdom. And does it in a compassionate, caring way that that uh, reinforces our relationship with each other. Uh, I don't think AI is there now. I don't think it's going to be there Uh, For the near future, I never say never, (laughs) you know, there might be a day when it can do that. But I think that's my answer is uh, I and anyone else who provide particularly professional services, but it doesn't matter what position you're in, you're going to need to start moving from from providing information to knowledge to wisdom as the unique value that you provide that's going to make you valuable even in the face of AI that can automate some of the lower levels of what you used to uh, provide and and, and uh, obtain value from. That's a great point you've uh, mentioned, uh, 
about transitioning from information to knowledge phase to wisdom phase. And that is where I think it's not only everybody, I think, has to uh, uh, introspect about how they are going to use these tools and how they can be uh, make themselves more useful uh, with these different kinds of solutions and make, make them more powerful by using these solutions. I completely agree with you. And I'll just add there, you know, when I yeah. mentioned a way that's that that connects with the other person, right. you know, right. it in a strange way, it's a way that the technology can help us to form more human connections with each other, right? right. Uh, as long as you learn to leverage it, uh, it can sort of free us to focus on the human aspect of the relationship. Uh, and so, you know, people have this fear that technology is going to turn us more into machines or replace us. I actually see the opposite. It can opposite. it can free us to be more human. Right. Exactly. I completely agree with that. I think this is, we are just about scratching the surface and there's a lot more to unpack. I know it's a great conversation with you. I didn't even notice that we are almost getting close to an hour. Any closing <laughs> remarks that you would like to provide to our audience? I, I would... Yeah, I would say, you know, really see this as a this latest boom or undergoing in AI as a great opportunity. You know, we all do have fears, uh, but I see so much of the conversation focused on fear. Try to shift your mindset to uh, more uh, abundance, you know, move from scarcity as if mm -hmm. there's only a fixed amount of demand for problem solving or solutions out there to an abundance mindset in which we see that as AI can, can perform more and more tasks, it'll actually increase the amount of demand for, for human skills, for the need to solve problems, to help each other. And so shift to that abundance, hope, optimistic-based mindset. And if once you get in that mindset, then you'll start to see the opportunities that are available to you to, to leverage all of this uh, to your benefit and to the benefit of everyone around you. Beautiful. Thanks um, for that insightful conversation, Robert. Uh, it was wonderful having you on board. Thanks so much, Raghu. I really enjoyed uh, uh, being here, and I hope all of your listeners enjoy it. So, all right, as we uh, draw this episode of Extra AI to a close, I would first like to extend a heartfelt thank you to Mr. Robert Rodkin for joining us today. Robert, your insights into the intersection of AI, generative AI, and patent law have been incredibly enlightening and thought-provoking. Your expertise in this rapidly evolving field has undoubtedly shed light on many aspects that our audience, and myself included, may not have fully appreciated before. I hope uh, the audience, uh, the audience uh, perspective, we have uh, addressed a few questions uh, like, is AI replacing human authors, artists, and inventors? And I hope uh, you are able to understand the aspects that we have discussed. We have also discussed about how AI is being used by technology companies to develop new products and services. I believe we have also briefly touched based on the aspects of how can consumers' distrust of AI be addressed to enable widespread adoption. If you have any further questions, feel free to reach out to my guest directly, Mr. Robert Plotkin, since I will be tagging him on the LinkedIn post. Alternatively, you can reach out to me, Raghu Banda, 
and I can uh, put you in touch with Mr. Robert. As always, you can uh, reach out to me on my other social media channels like Rabu Banda on LinkedIn or RK Banda on Twitter or X. And you can alternatively go into my website www.extraai.com xtraai.com and you can find many more interesting episodes in the realm of AI. And as you all know, our podcasts are available on all podcasting platforms and your feedback is important. Keep sending those important feedback and important requests on the wide varying aspects of AI. Finally, to you all, our wonderful audience at Extra AI, Thank you for tuning in and being a part of this engaging conversation. Your curiosity and engagement are what drives us to explore such diverse and significant topics. Remember, we have many more fascinating discussions lined up for you as we continue through this year. We are dedicated to bringing you the most innovative and impactful conversations in the world of AI and beyond. So stay with us as we aim to end the year 2023 with a bank full of new insights, knowledge, and groundbreaking discussions. Thank you all once again for joining us. And until next time, keep exploring, keep learning, and stay tuned for more episodes of Extra AI. Here's to you all with discovery and uh, innovation. Happy predicting the future with AI technologies. Thank you and bye-bye now.